0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 for our time of study in the Word this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of John's Gospel this morning, we come this morning to John chapter 13, uh, verse 31, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 31 through 38. And the title of the message this morning is Judas leaves, Jesus leads, Judas leaves, Jesus leads. I want to start off my message with a hypothetical scenario. What would you do if I came up to you this morning and told you with prophetic certainty that tonight you will be arrested and that by this time tomorrow you will be dead? And how would you respond if in addition to that I told you that your death would involve six hours of unimaginable suffering in full view of the public? How would you respond? And what would you do with your final hours of freedom prior to your arrest and all of these things being set in motion? Whatever you would do during these hours before your arrest this evening would probably reveal a lot about you, right? Well, in our passage this morning, we get to observe what Jesus does in exactly such a moment. As we have seen in recent weeks, Jesus is at his final Passover supper with his disciples the day before his death. Last week, we saw how it was that during that supper, Jesus spoke to his disciples and foretold of his betrayal. We saw how he identified his betrayer to be Judas by dipping a morsel of food into a bowl of sauce and by handing it. To Judas, or feeding it to him. And then in verse 27, we read these words. Look at the text. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And then observe what John says in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. This is a huge moment in the narrative. With the departure of Judas from the room, it's almost as if Jesus can now hear the wheels of God's providence accelerating in their movements toward the cross as events are now hastening toward his arrest later this evening and Jesus' crucifixion the very next day. While the cross has always been in Jesus' view throughout the entirety of his life and his public ministry, Judas' departure from the room means that Jesus' arrest and crucifixion are just a few short hours away. Does Jesus panic in this moment? Does he go running after Judas to stop him from going to the religious authorities? Does he become embittered and sour and pouty with his disciples? Does he run from the room in search of some place to hide from the authorities that will soon be coming for him? No, he doesn't do any of these things. He does... Something else instead, three things, in fact, to give his disciples perspective and to prepare them for what is to come, to prepare them for the road ahead. If you have the hard copy of your notes with you this morning, we'll break down our study of this passage by observing three actions of Jesus in leading his disciples after Judas went out of the room to betray him. Three actions of Jesus that we see in our passage this morning. Action number one, he announces that his and his father's moment of glory has arrived. He announces that his and his father's moment of glory has arrived. Observe what happens in verse 31. Therefore, when he, Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Notice the connection that John, the writer, is making between what just happened and what Jesus is now saying. Judas walks out of the room to go betray Jesus, and then John says, therefore, when he had gone out, John is making it clear that Jesus says what he says here in verse 31, not simply after Judas walks out of the room to go betray him, but because of Judas's departure from the room. As for what Jesus says, he says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. You almost get the feeling that Jesus is speaking these words with something of a sigh of relief, as if this is some desirable moment that Jesus has been longing for. And other writers have picked up on this as well. The commentator Linsky says, and I quote, the words here sound as though a great weight has been taken off the heart of Jesus as though he once more breathes freely again. And as he speaks, he says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. We have here in this verse yet another moment when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, which points us again back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision where he sees the Son of Man coming up to the ancient of days and being presented before him. And Daniel sees the Son of Man being given glory and a kingdom that will never pass away or ever be destroyed. And here in this verse, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am that Son of Man And my ultimate moment of glory is finally here, where you disciples will see my glory revealed in a greater way than anything you have witnessed so far. This announcement from Jesus would be astonishing for the disciples to hear, for they have seen Jesus do amazing things that have brought tremendous glory to Jesus from walking on water to raising the dead and countless other miracles. But they would know from what Jesus is saying here that there is a far greater moment that is coming that will cause all of those earlier manifestations of his glory to pale in comparison. In a context like this, to glorify means to magnify or to increase the estimation in which a person is held. Which means that Jesus is saying here that his sacrificial death will magnify his reputation and the father's reputation as well. As one writer puts it, in all of heaven and earth, there is no act so worthy of praise and honor as this act of Jesus in giving his life upon a cross. What Jesus is about to do will provoke a billion moments of praise to himself and to God the Father, and trillions more of such moments in the age to come as well as the eternal salvation of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And from this verse, we observe that part of what makes this moment of Christ's glorification so special to Jesus is that God, the Father, will be glorified in him and together with him. The cross will be a demonstration of the glory of the Son and of the Father, it will be a glorification that they experience together, and Jesus would have it no other way. It is at the cross where God will reveal his attributes in their fullest array, from his wrath to his love, his justice and his grace, his righteousness and mercy, his wisdom and patience, His sovereignty and his passion. There is no other event in the history of the world that so displays the full range of the character and attributes of God as does the cross. Which is why Jesus is saying now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him Jesus continues in verse 32 and says, If God is glorified in him, speaking of the Son of Man, which is Jesus, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, the Son of Man, in himself and will glorify him immediately. Jesus is saying at the cross, the Son of Man will be glorified and the glory of the Father will be manifested in the Son at the cross. But then after the cross, God will glorify the Son of Man in himself, and he will do so immediately. Or in other words, in a way that is sudden and abrupt and startling when it happens. Jesus' language here is pointing to the Father's raising of Jesus from the dead, and ultimately ascending Jesus to his own right hand, where Jesus will be forever enthroned in the praises of heaven. And Jesus is saying that these things will happen with a certain swiftness on the other side of this glorious moment of his death upon a cross. All in all, when you read what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32, you realize that this is Remarkably positive language from Jesus about his horrible suffering that is about to commence. But this is the way Jesus sees the cross that lies before him. And being lifted up upon a cross, he will be releasing people around the world from Satan's rule. And he will draw men and women to himself From every nation. In other words, through his death upon a cross, Jesus will conquer. And that is something that none of the rulers of this world ever saw coming. Conquer through a cross? Are you kidding me? But this is the way it will be. In his book, The Cross of Christ... John Stott captures this beautifully. Listen to what he says. Any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished unbelief to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had he not been rejected by his own nation Betrayed, denied, and deserted by his own disciples, and executed by authority from the Roman governor? Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross. Robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails, pinned there, and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory... It is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet, what looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, Jesus was himself overcoming crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. And in our passage today, Jesus knows that this is to be the outcome of his surrender of himself upon the cross, which is why He speaks to his disciples in advance and says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Observe what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 33. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. The word that is translated little children here is a term of endearment. And it means something like darling children, precious children. This is the only time Jesus refers to his disciples this way in John's gospel. But it must have really resonated with John because it became John's favorite way of referring to his own readers in 1 John. He uses the term seven times in 1 John to refer to his readers as precious, darling children in the faith. As for this moment here in John 13, there's a lot to love about Jesus' tender language to his disciples. With Judas having just left the room to go betray Jesus, Jesus could have allowed his mood to turn sour. But he doesn't let that happen. Instead of becoming embittered, he actually becomes more tender and says to his disciples, little children, precious, darling children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews now I also say to you where I am going you cannot come It was back in John 7:34 and chapter 8 verse 21 that Jesus spoke similar words as these to the Jews but now he's saying this to his disciples and letting them know that he is about to walk a gauntlet that only he can walk right now. None of his disciples can do this for him, nor can any of them do this with him. It is something that he must do without them for only he can accomplish this. So he says to his disciples, where I am going, you cannot come. So what are the disciples to do with themselves? In the meantime, if Jesus is about to do something that his disciples cannot do and if Jesus is about to go somewhere where the disciples cannot right now go there with him, then what should they do with themselves? Well, Jesus tells them in the next two verses, which brings us to the second act of Jesus in leading his disciples after Judas went out on his mission to betray him. Number two, he commands his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. He commands his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. Observe what Jesus says to them in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus is reminding his disciples of his love for them that he has already shown to them in a million different ways, including just recently at this very supper, washing their feet. But he is also speaking these words to them in view of the cross that lies before him. The disciples have no idea how to interpret what has just happened, but when Jesus permitted Judas to leave the room, And told Judas to act quickly. Jesus was literally setting in motion a chain of events. That will lead him right to the cross. Jesus could have stopped Judas. But he doesn't. And in letting Judas go. Jesus was loving his disciples. And he was loving you and me. In a way that the disciples will come to understand later. And here in verse 34, Jesus is giving them a command that he knows they will more fully comprehend in a few days, commanding them to love one another as he has loved them. Notice how Jesus refers to his commandment here as a new commandment, which might take you by surprise a little bit. Because on one level, the commandment to love is not a new commandment at all, right? In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, the law already gave the command to love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Which is a powerful, ethical guideline that represents the highest ideal expressed in the law. So high that the apostle Paul, in Galatians 5.14, teaches that the whole law is fulfilled in obeying this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. But in this moment, here in John 13, Jesus is not commanding his disciples to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he's not commanding his disciples to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's introducing a whole new standard by which they are to love one another and a whole new reservoir from which they are to draw as they endeavor to love one another. Look again at his instruction here. Love one another, not as yourself, love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. As far as a high standard and a deep well go, no one in history, the history of the world has ever loved anyone like Jesus has loved these disciples. And Jesus is now commanding his disciples to love each other after the very pattern of Of the love that they have personally experienced from him. So in a way, gone is the standard of loving your neighbor merely as you love yourself. Now it's love one another as Jesus has loved you. And this is a command that can only be carried out by those who have experienced the love of Jesus. Which is the greatest love of all. Whitney Houston used to sing about how she had found the greatest love of all. Singing with the passion of any saint, belting out a religious hymn, she sang the greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Well, I'm afraid if Jesus disciples heard someone singing that song, they would say, if your love for yourself is the greatest love that you've ever found, then you really should get out more and meet Jesus for his love is the greatest love of all. Here in verse 34, Jesus speaking to his disciples and to us. And he's saying, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. So your takeaway from this commandment of Jesus should not be to, you know, resolve to get out there today and this week and love other people. Your first takeaway should be to believe in Jesus and to enter into his love And if you are already in his love as a believer in Jesus, your first takeaway should be to think afresh on all the ways that Jesus has loved you. You should preach the gospel of his love to yourself and you should abide day by day in his love and then seek to love others the way he is loving you. As Spurgeon once said, it is love that gives birth to love. So as people who are loved by Christ, situated firmly and safely in his love, we can now obey Jesus' command and begin showing that same love to others with joy. Jesus then says to his disciples in verse 35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is an amazing statement. Jesus evidently doesn't just want his disciples to love one another. He wants them to be famous for their love for each other. He doesn't mind that his disciples might become well-known for their knowledge or their preaching or the miracles that they perform in Jesus' name. Even today, Jesus would actually want us as Christians to be well known for our righteous positions on various cultural issues confronting our society right now. But he wants us to be known first and foremost for our love for each other. As we love each other in the same way that Jesus has loved us. Jesus is saying to his disciples here. Essentially, as my disciples, you men are the special objects of my love and people will know that you have been loved by me in this special way by how you act going forward. By how you go about loving one another in the same way that I have loved you. I want your love for each other to be the mark, the premier mark that distinguishes you before the world as my disciples. By this, he says, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I hope you guys have listened carefully to Jesus' words in verse 34 and 35. And I say this because I know one person who didn't listen to these words at all. And that's a guy named Peter, which leads us to the third act of Jesus and leading his disciples after Judas went out on his mission to betray him. Number three, he foretells Peter's later faithfulness following his imminent cowardice. He foretells Peter's later faithfulness following his imminent, which means soon, cowardice. Peter isn't thinking at all right now about Jesus' command for. Him to be loving his fellow disciples. He missed that part because he is stuck on what Jesus said prior to that about the fact that he's going somewhere that they can't come. In the mind of Peter, wherever Jesus is going, Peter wants to go with him rather than being stuck behind with these fellow disciples. So look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Where Jesus is going, we all know, is to the cross and then to the grave and then to his resurrection and then to the right hand of the father. So Jesus says to Peter, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will. Follow later. Jesus is saying, Peter, I am about to embark on a mission that only I can perform. But there is coming a day when you will follow me on the path I am on, and you will glorify God through your death as well. We'll Observe Peter's response to Jesus in verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter is not content to follow Jesus on this path. In some future distant day, he wants to follow Jesus on this path right now. And Peter is pretty confident about his ability to do that. In this comfortable upper room and with a stomach full of food from the Passover supper. Peter is confident that he is prepared to die for and with Jesus. And notice that this confidence is only in himself and not in his fellow disciples. Notice that Peter doesn't even try to speak for the rest of the disciples and say, Lord, why can't we follow you right now? We will lay down our lives for you. Peter doesn't say that. Instead, he speaks only for himself in a way that actually distinguishes him from his fellow disciples. On top of that, Jesus has just told the disciples to love one another. But it seems that Peter would rather just go with Jesus wherever Jesus is going He'd rather do that than have to hang back with his fellow disciples and have to do the hard work of loving them. It seems that Peter would be just fine being done with his fellow disciples and riding off into the sunset with Jesus as they both die a martyr's death together. What a heroic, inspiring figure Peter would turn out to be if he could have done that. If he ended up being the lone disciple who was willing to die with Jesus. Peter doesn't see this in himself right now, as we often don't see the selfishness and pride in us in given moments. But mixed in with his genuine love for Jesus is a horrible, wicked pride. But there is more than pride and overconfidence at work in how Peter is responding to Jesus here. This, in addition to pride and self-confidence, is Peter failing to appreciate the unique work that Jesus is about to embark on. A work that only Jesus can do and that is to suffer and die on a cross to bring atonement to sinners. As the commentator Edward Klink says, in responding to Jesus the way he does here, Peter is actually challenging the unique character and purpose of this departure of Jesus. In an earlier moment, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying, That he would be essentially suffering and dying on a cross. Now he's kind of rebuking Jesus for saying that he's going to die alone. Without Peter. There to supplement what Jesus is doing. Peter thinks Jesus is about to do something that he needs Peter's help with. He thinks Jesus is about to do something that he needs Peter to join with him in. But Peter could not be more wrong. Jesus did not need Peter's help for this mission, and he knew he wasn't going to get Peter's help anyway. Observe Jesus' reply to Peter in verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In asking Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Jesus is adjusting Peter's perspective about who will be dying for whom here. Jesus doesn't need Peter laying down his life for him. It is Peter who needs Jesus to lay down his life for Peter in order to save him from his sins, including his pride. Peter thinks he's ready to do something for Jesus that he's clearly not ready to do yet And we know this because of verse 38, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, points out that in Palestine, roosters would crow around 1230 a.m., 130 a.m., and 230 a.m. How irritating would that be? causing Roman soldiers to use the expression rooster crow to speak of the shift of the night between midnight and three in the morning. In fact, in Mark 13, verse 35, Jesus actually speaks of the rooster crowing as something that happens between midnight and morning. So at the latest, Jesus is warning Peter here of the fact that by three In the morning, he will have denied Jesus not once and not twice, but three times. What an awful night of failure lies ahead for Peter, a night of colossal failure that he cannot even begin to fathom right now. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? If you keep reading in John's gospel and combine what you learn in John's gospel with the other gospel accounts, you will find out that after Jesus is arrested later this evening, Peter will three times be asked if he is a disciple of or an associate or if he's ever been with Jesus. And three times Peter will deny that and will deny that he even knows Jesus. And according to Mark chapter 14 verse 71, the third of those times, Peter will utter a curse upon himself and swear and say, I do not know that man. We don't know exactly the language of Peter's cursing and swearing in this third denial. But the language of Mark indicates that Peter would have said something like this. May God damn me to hell if I am lying when I swear to you by the name of God that I do not know that man. Wow. In Luke 22, verse 60, Luke tells us that after Peter said something like this, the rooster crowed. And then in one Awful, unforgettable moment, Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and their eyes met. Peter then remembered Jesus' prediction and went out and wept bitterly, a deeply chastened and humbled man. As Peter is listening to Jesus here in John 13, he doesn't realize that this very night will be the worst night of his life and it will be made worse by jesus crucifixion the next day but thankfully peter's horrible failure will not be the end of the story and neither is it for you in fact if you look at the sum total of all that jesus says to peter here in verses 36 to 38 you see that jesus has actually made two predictions It'd be easy to miss this. He's made two predictions about Peter, one negative and one positive. Jesus has just said in verse 38 that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows in the wee hours of the night. That's, that's a bummer of a prediction to hear about yourself. Based on what Peter is hearing from Jesus in verse 38, for Judas' one act of betrayal... Peter will engage in three acts of denial by three in the morning. But let's go back up to verse 36, where Jesus makes a positive prediction about Peter's future. When he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you singular will follow later. Isn't that wonderful? What wonderful words of destiny these are from Jesus to Peter. In saying these words in verse 36, Jesus is assuring Peter that he will recover from his failure of this night and eventually grow into the kind of man who will give his life in sacrificial service to Jesus And follow Jesus to heaven. So ultimately Jesus is telling Peter that in the short term. He's going to fail hugely. But he is also telling Peter that he will rise from the ashes of that failure. And end up following Jesus. To wherever it is that Jesus is going right now. And that is to a fate of suffering and death for the glory of God followed by resurrection and glory. And that brings us to the end of John 13. What we learn from our passage today is that Jesus knows us. He knows our failures before they happen. And that is good news, right? Right? It's good to know because it assures us that Jesus came into his relationship with us with his eyes wide open, knowing everything there is to know about us, including our every failure. When a man and a woman enter into a marriage relationship, there is so much that they do not know about each other But there they are, up in front of an audience, pledging their lives away to each other, no matter what, for better or for worse, even though there's so much that they do not yet know about each other and that many surprising discoveries, some of them unpleasant, await. But we never surprise Jesus he knows all of our failures before they happen, and he committed himself to us anyway. There's no other relationship with any other person that can even begin to match that, right? But I should also point out that Jesus doesn't just know about our failures before they happen. Based on our passage today, we can also say that he knows our acts of faithfulness before They happen. He knows our acts of faithfulness. Before they happen. Which means that he knows. What he's going to make of us. In the end. And he has this confident knowledge. About us. Not because he believes in us. But because he knows. That he's a really good savior. Who can transform us. Into something. Beautiful in the end. He knows that. When he begins a good work in us, he will complete that work that he has started and produce the fruit of faithfulness in our lives. Which means that when Jesus looks upon you right now, today, or in any moment of failure, he doesn't just see you as you are now. He also sees what he's going to make of you in the end. Is that encouraging? Remember this truth in your moments of deepest failure as a Christian. And remember this truth when you're looking at a fellow believer in their moment of deepest failure. God is not finished with you. Christ is not finished with that believer that you're looking at right now in their moment of failure. And maybe trying to help. The present chapter in your life or in that other person's life may be ugly, but Jesus is the one who writes last chapters. And the final chapters for all of us who believe in him is going to be astonishingly beautiful. Do you believe that this morning? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mare Christianity. The command, be ye perfect. Is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Christ is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let Him, He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating. All through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less He meant what he said, unquote. This is what Jesus does with all those whom he has set his love upon. Whom he justifies, what? He glorifies. And it is his love that will transform us into what he wants us to be. As Martin Luther says, true love does not choose only to love what is lovely. True love makes lovely. True love loves the unlovely and transforms it into something lovely. Which means that the greatest glory that can befall anyone is to simply be loved by Jesus or to say it another way, to be a disciple whom Jesus loves. Let me reread a portion of our passage from last week that I promised you that we would revisit. Observe how the Apostle John refers to himself in verse 23. He says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. As we look at John's description of himself here, we should appreciate the fact that John does not refer to himself as the disciple who loved Jesus, although he did. John, remarkably, does not identify himself by anything that he does. He simply identifies himself by the fact that Jesus loved him. For a man of incredible spiritual attainment, Like John was, by the time he's writing this gospel, this is a remarkable way for him to describe himself. And in speaking this way about himself, John is not suggesting that Jesus loved him with some special love that Jesus did not love the other disciples with. In fact, back in chapter 13, verse 1, John explicitly talks about how Jesus, having loved his own plural he loved them, plural, to the end. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that that could be translated to the uttermost, to the nth degree. So John has stated that Jesus loved all of his disciples to the uttermost. And it is in the matrix of Jesus' love for all of his disciples that we find the birth of this self expression of John appearing here in John 13 for the very first time in this gospel, and it will show up later as well. But notice John's precise language in verse 23, where he speaks of himself simply as one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. In other words, Jesus loved each of his disciples to the uttermost, and John was happy enough to just be one of them, and this is how he wishes to identify himself to you, the reader, and to be known. John's use of such language in describing himself teaches us that this is fundamentally how we are to view ourselves and thus find our greatest, most fundamental identity, not in our failures and not even in the good things that we do for Jesus but in the fact that he loves us. And we should also find our greatest hope in his love as well. For if Jesus has set his redemptive special love on you, it guarantees that you will be perfectly lovely one day in glory. But the good news is we don't have to wait until... Glory. Don't hear what I just said and say, so I can be mean and nasty now. I'll be lovely then. That's awesome. No, the good news is that we don't have to wait until glory. Jesus doesn't want you to wait until glory for his love to transform you in this way. In verse 34, Jesus calls upon us in the here and now to love one another, even as he has loved us, to mirror his love to each other. This command of Jesus in verse 34 applies to all of our relationships, fundamentally the way that we treat the members of our family as we love one another with the very love that Jesus has loved us with. And based on Jesus' promise in verse 35, Jesus actually wants us to think about the evangelistic impact that each of us loving one another will have on the world around us. One of my favorite stories that I have shared with you guys before is from Jim Peterson's book entitled Evangelism as a Lifestyle. In that book, Jim Peterson tells about the conversion of a Brazilian young man whose name was Mario who was a Marxist intellectual and political activist in Brazil. And Jim Peterson began a relationship with this young man and had four years of regular Bible studies with him until one day Mario believed in Christ and called upon his name for salvation. Several years after Mario's conversion, he was talking to Jim, and he said, Hey, Jim, do you know what it was that caused me to accept Christ? And Jim said, No, I don't. What, what was it? And Jim shares in his book how he thought that Mario was going to say that it was Jim's in-depth teaching and intellectual arguments that persuaded him to accept Christ. But Mario didn't say anything about those things as helpful as no doubt they were. Instead, here's what Mario said, quote, remember that first time I stopped by your house, we were on our way someplace together and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiance? When I realized that the answer was never, I concluded that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. What this young intellectual saw was a relationship between a Christian husband and wife and their children as they related to one another. And he was literally undone by what he saw. He suddenly saw his spiritual poverty and was well on his way to being drawn to Christ. Imagine that. Imagine loving your spouse and your children and your siblings in such a way that when A non-believer sees you, they suddenly see their own spiritual poverty and decide that they simply must become a Christian for the sake of their own survival. As we relate to one another with humility and confession and forgiveness and grace and love. That's what Jesus is telling us here in verse 35, that he wants to see. Happening as the world sees how we love one another in our homes and in the church. Us loving one another as Jesus has loved us is one of the greatest, most powerful gifts that we as a church can give to the world. I think it is so appropriate that we come to this particular passage on this first Sunday of our care group year. Because Jesus instructions remind us that this is how he wants us to relate to one another in our care groups. There are actually people who are right now attending Cornerstone because they witnessed care group members loving one another. So you guys hardly need me to do anything but to encourage you to keep excelling at loving one another the way that you do in your care groups. As we begin our care group year, don't just see your care group as a meeting to attend once a week. See it as a group of Brothers and sisters that you can pray for and minister to and rejoice with and weep with. And help carry burdens together with. See your care group members as people that you can bless and serve and love with the very love of Jesus that he has lavished on you. Whether it's in our care groups or beyond May the world see our love for one another and realize that this love comes from Jesus. And may that realization cause them to want to enter into his love as well. If you're here this morning and you are considering whether or not you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus. I want you, just as we close, to take a moment to... Appreciate the fact that Jesus, from our passage today, he viewed his greatest moment of glory to be the moment when he got to give up his life for sinners like you and me. Is not his love the greatest love of all? Later in John, Jesus will say greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. And you're like, oh, well, what does he command? Well, his greatest command to us is just believe in me. As your Lord and Savior, and then abide in my love. And if you have never believed in Christ and called upon his name, and entered into his love so that you might then abide in his love from day to day for time and through all of eternity. My prayer is that today you will come running to him, that you would consider it an intolerable suffering to go one more hour of living apart from him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we we ask your blessing upon us as a church. That you would help us to fix our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus. To see the beauty and the glory of your person as it was displayed at the cross. That we would be beautifully undone by what we see. And then just as beautifully remade by what we see. Help us, Lord, to abide in your great love, to marinate in your great love, to rejoice in all the ways that you love us. And then in the spirit of all of that remembrance, Lord, that we would be able to turn towards the flawed and imperfect human beings that we encounter in our life from day to day, from our brothers and sisters to even those that do not know you and just view it as our greatest glory that we get to mirror this love of Jesus to them. Even when doing so hurts, Just like it hurt you, Lord Jesus, at the cross. And yet you viewed that as your moment of greatest glory. Make us more like you. And may others see Jesus in us. We ask all of these things. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.